So we're going to look at Luke chapter 2 this morning, um, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 20. Just kind of set the scene. If you grew up in church, you've heard this before. If you haven't, give it a listen. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or taxed. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town or the place of his birth. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So he went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go therefore over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising Yahweh for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the reading of God's word. Now, let me give you a little background here. The first two chapters of the book of Luke really read like a musical. Um, What happens often within these chapters is that you'll have a messenger show up on the scene, an angelic messenger, and an announcement will be made. Uh, and the re- recipient of this announcement will burst into song, um, a, a joyous celebration at this announcement. Uh, the first songs of Luke are filled with anticipation, tension, and hope. They're, they're setting us up and preparing us, pointing us forward to this grand event that we just read about here. And, and, and in music, if you know anything about music, this is called tension, and it is the perceived need for relaxation or release created by a listener's expectation. Um, I don't know if any of you guys listen to Radiohead at all, but Radiohead classically does this, where like you're listening to them, and you're to the point where you're like, you want to scream, because it's like so much tension is building, and then all of a sudden, Tom York's like, ah, and he'll break into this like release, and you're like, thank 
God, right? Yeah, so that's tension and release, and that's, I think, the best example I can think of it. But also, like in symphonies, you've always got that, the cellos come in, you know, it's like, what is he doing right now? I don't know what I'm doing. Um, but this is tension and release, and it, it creates this dynamic in, in music and just beauty. You, you enter into the pain and, and the tension, you, and you long for the hope to which the music is pointing, to you, pointing you to. You long for the release. And like I said, the first two songs, Mary's song and Zachariah's song, are like that. But they leave us in this tension in great anticipation and wonder. And now, as I said, we're given that release here in the third song. And this song tells us one of the main meanings of Christmas, what Christmas is really about. And so, you just think for a minute. When you think about Christmas, what do you think of? You know, what does Christmas mean to you? If you were to summarize it in a few words, maybe you would describe it as Santa Claus, classically, like American, Santa Claus being Crosby, White Christmas, you're thinking that kind of stuff. Maybe it's presents, family, it's time for charity. Um, maybe it's Jesus' birth. It's like, hey, you're getting there and getting close. Yule log. What is a Yule log, right? Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Nobody does that here, but they do it in England. Um, so what do you think of when you think of Christmas? One of the reasons why I love this passage of Scripture is because we get a perspective on Christmas from an outsider, We get a perspective from angels who are not even the recipients of the gift, the hope, the blessing of Christmas. And they're the ones who tell us what Christmas is really all about. And so what we're going to do this morning, we're going to allow the angels' message to inform our perspective on Christmas. And and maybe bring us back in tune, bring us back in step with what Christmas is really about and what we should be thinking about. And of course... I imagine if we really thought about it, oh, it's a time for family, it's a time to love and care for one another, to connect with one another. Yes, it is, but it is so much, much, much more than that. Christmas is a time where God wants to remind us, equip us, fill us up with that joy that the shepherds first had when they received the news of the first Christmas. And so I hope that that's what the Lord does for you and does for me this morning. So, What's their message? How do they summarize the meaning of Christmas? Well, I'll read it one more time. So the first thing they say to the shepherds is, Fear not, for behold, we're bringing you good news, a great announcement of a a momentous occasion, great joy that is for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is called Messiah, the Lord. And this is the sign. How will you know? You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there were a multitude of these angelic beings praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So for the angelic world, if we were to summarize what Christmas is about, it's about these things. Glory to God and peace on earth. This is what Christmas is about. Glory to God and peace on earth. So let's talk about those. So glory to God. We, if you grew up in church, you hear this phrase all the time, like glory, bless the Lord. You know, people say this kind of stuff all the time. And I guarantee 90% of you have no idea what it really means. We just say it. It's just the Christianese, Christian cliche stuff. So 
If you want to keep saying it, great. I'm going to inform you what it means. You can keep on saying it. If you don't remember what it says, don't say it anymore. Okay? There we go. So glory to God. What does it actually mean when we say this? It means this. God, you deserve all the praise, all the fame, and all the cheers. So you think about like going to you know, a Giants game, or you think about going to a 49ers game, or maybe you're more of an East Bay sports kind of person. Right? You think about how people go nuts over their teams. They go nuts. They give all the cheer. They give all the praise. That's what we're talking about here. God deserves our standing applause, all the excitement and joy because of what he's doing. You deserve that everyone would recognize how great and glorious you really are. Now, God has a bad reputation. God, when I say God, I mean the God of the Bible, Yahweh. He has a bad reputation. And I love this passage among other passages because it pulls back the veil and it shows us what this God is really like. He's a God who deserves for everyone to know his true character, what his real heart of hearts is for people. You deserve, God, that everyone would recognize how great and glorious you really are. Why? Well, the second part of this, peace on earth. Now, the old King James Version, if you... You might use that Bible. It says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. The ESV translation, which is what I'm using here this morning, says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Seems a little more particular there. So the older wording seems to be saying in general that everyone will have peace through this child, through this Savior, this Messiah. The newer ESV seems to be saying that only God's special favorites will have peace through him. And I, I think that neither of these interpretations is the most accurate. And I think first we need to remember what, what does peace mean in the Bible? Now we know what it means to hippie Berkeley culture. We know what it means if we're talking UN and stuff like that. It means the absence of war. It means like, hey, don't rock the boat if you're talking Berkeley, something like that. But what does the Bible mean when it says peace on earth? Now, the word that's used um, here in the New Testament borrows from the Old Testament. It's the word shalom. It's a word we use here at Refuge a lot in our preaching. And shalom means more than just prosperity. It means more than just general peacefulness and a trouble-free life. In the scriptures, shalom is the positive peace of a world filled with righteousness and justice. So what righteousness is, is that we, each one of us would treat one another with respect and honor. That, like the Sermon on the Mount says, that we would... Do unto others as we would have them, as we, we would have done unto us. That is how we live righteously, to treat one another with that kind of respect. Justice is to make sure righteousness happens at your own expense. When you see injustice happening, you charge it to your own account. You step in, you pay the bill, you take the blow, you do these things to create justice. And when we live this way, when this is lived out, it brings this shalom, this positive peace, this harmony amongst people, neighborhoods, 
nations. Shalom is peace really in the fullest uh, sense of the word. Uh, In Hebrew, it can also mean health to a sin-sick soul. Someone who is just out of their mind, filled with anxiety and fear. Shalom is what the scripture speaks to them and what God offers them. Peace in their hearts, peace in the knowledge of who he is, of his great love, of his power to center us. Shalom is also used to describe the sound and healthy relationship between God and people. People and people. It's another way the Bible talks about the sound condition of universal righteousness and prosperity prevailing over the earth. And the Bible uses this again and again and again and again. And in the Old Testament, God is constantly pointing forward to how he is going to make peace, how he's going to bring shalom. And I can't remember the passage at at this moment, but there's this portion, I think it's in the book of Isaiah, where God envisions what that day is going to look like. And he talks about how children will play in the streets without any fear. Any of you have, you have kids and you live like on a fairly busy street? Maybe you stick out that like glowing green man with his arm. He does nothing. He does absolutely nothing. It's unfortunate. I live on, uh, over by the JC and actually I have a kind of a quiet street. But people whip around our corner. And I've just, I told you guys, I think a while ago, Hudson's bike. And oh my gosh, and I just lost my mind. Um, my son almost died right before my eyes. But, but when God envisions peace, I mean, it's not just like world peace. It's not just the absence of nations. I mean, it's down to the, the, the most details of family, neighborhood, of children playing in the streets, of old men and, and couples, men and women just sitting on their porch enjoying life. Scripture also describes it how every man will live under his own vine, every woman live under her own vine. Now, the vine or wine in Scripture speaks of prosperity. It speaks of celebration, of rejoicing. This is what God envisions for the world. This is what God has waiting for all people. And we can look at other passages in in Scripture about how the, the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. A child will play with a cobra. And it says, and no one will harm or hurt in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. And this is the peace that God offers to the world, this is the peace that God wants to bring to the world. And you know what? We desperately need this peace. And we can talk about how we're disconnected and hostile toward people that are different than us. Right now we're living in this heightened political climate where politics has taken the place of religion. You are more likely to marry somebody of a different religion than you are of a different political party. It's insane. And people are angry. So much hostility going on. But we could talk about even just, uh, let me just tell you about my week. Everybody I know has the flu right now. You know where my children are? Hidden away in my house. Because we don't want, and I have had so much angst all week long. Like, I go to bed, and my stomach's, like, gurgling. I'm like, am I hungry? Am I going to throw up? What's happening to me? I'm so fearful, because I'm going to Orange County today to see my family, and I'm so fearful. Somebody's just going to just start puking down the five, you know? Like, here we go. Merry Christmas, you know? So I just think about, like, peace. You can take it for the grand spectrum down to just, like, 
just in my heart, just the little things in my life that I lose sleep over, that I just think about and run through, whether I'm having a disagreement with someone and we have enmity and conflict in our places of work, in our homes, and even in our own souls. Uh, one of my favorite Christmas songs, really isn't a Christmas song, is a song by you too. And uh, I'll just read you the words. The song's called Peace on Earth. But it says, Heaven on Earth, we need it now. I'm sick of all of this hanging around. I'm sick of sorrow. I'm sick of pain. I am sick of hearing again and again that there's going to be peace on earth. It says, where I grew up, there weren't many trees. But where there were, we tore them down and we used them on our enemies. They say that what you mock will surely overtake you. And you become a monster, so the monster will not break you. But it's already gone too far. Who said if you, that it... Who said if you go in hard, you won't get hurt? Jesus, can you take the time to throw a drowning man a line? Peace on earth. Tell the ones who hear no sound, whose sons are living in the ground, that there's peace on earth. No one cries like a mother cries for peace on earth. She never got to say goodbye, to see the color in their eyes. Now they're in the dirt. Where is peace on earth? Do you ever feel like that? I, just, I listen to this song, and, and it does for me what the Songs of Luke do, does. It creates this tension of just this longing for something greater, something more, something that we're, everybody talks about, everybody really longs for, from nations to states to cities to neighborhoods to families to individuals. We long for peace. Now, I said the angels have offered a two-line summary of good news that not only tells us what salvation looks like, but for whom the salvation is intended and by whom. And this is what it says. The story's central character, God, intends peace on earth. Paul Boardman wrote a book called The Way According to Luke. He says this. This apparently is God's glory to find peace among those on earth whom God favors. Listen to that again. What pleases God? What glorifies God? Peace on earth. Peace on earth, peace in our hearts, peace in our families, peace in our lives. This brings God glory, praise, recognition, worship. Which is crazy. This means that God's glory is connected to and expressed in earthly peace. And and I think for most of us, we think that these are total opposite ends of the spectrum. God being glorified and me being happy. God being worshipped and my life being filled with peace and joy are two opposite things. But according to the message of the Bible, they are an indissoluble whole. C.S. Lewis said this, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good or earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant. 
and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. It glorifies God to bring peace on earth, to bring peace to mankind. This is an amazing statement because it seems that, as I said a moment ago, most of us would view these as mutually exclusive. But think about it. Isn't it logical, though? If we take the the storyline of the Bible, that the creation would find its purpose its wholeness and its peace in its creator. And that the creator, the artist, would be most glorified when the creation is most satisfied in him. Again, Lewis says, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. And that is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. They are an indissoluble whole. God's glory and our peace. So how does this peace with God come about? Now, our cultural narrative tells us the only way to experience true peace, freedom, and happiness is if we are fully in charge of our lives. And I don't know if you guys have been like following just what's going on in the media and these things, but I mean, we're taking this to a new height now, thinking that any responsibility put on us by any authority, whether religious, familial, sexual, moral, societal, is a curb on our freedom and us becoming our true selves. That's what people are really talking about. I've got to get rid of all of this. We've got to get rid of gender and everything. And, 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 and it might be really confusing to people who have forever thought of just male and female, but the whole point isn't to say, like, I'm gay, I'm straight, I'm this, I'm that. It's just to say, I'm not any of those labels because all of those labels are confining my freedom. And that's what this push, this new push is for, that we have unlimited freedom. The crazy thing about this, though, is that in the end, this freedom may be unlimited, but it brings little meaning and purpose to life. So you have total freedom, the removal of obligation and responsibility, but you have an increased loneliness and disillusionment and increased hostility. And so much of our conflict comes over this freedom. My freedom. You are infringing upon my freedom. And that's what so much of the conflict is going on right now in the political realm. The Bible takes it back a step further and says, actually, our lack of peace and fulfillment runs much deeper than that. It is because we are out of touch with our creator and we are hostile to our creator. And that's why we have hostility with others. And there's no lasting peace on earth or personally because we don't have peace with God. And so the claim of Christmas, again, I mean, this is where this comes in so powerfully, God and sinners reconciled. 
God and sinners at peace through the coming of the Prince of Peace. Now, maybe you don't feel that you're hostile to God, right? But I think we have to be really clear about the God we're talking about, right? This isn't just like your Starbucks Jesus who likes free trade coffee, you know, and drives a Prius and cares about the environment and wants no conflict, right? It's not the Jesus we're talking about. It's not the the God we're talking about. We're talking about the God of the Bible, the God who says, among other things, I created you. I love you. I sustain your life. I give you breath in your lungs. I give you my world to enjoy. You're mine. I deserve to have all of your allegiance, loyalty, trust, obedience, all of your praise and affections. I alone have the rightful authority or kingship over your life. This God says you are hopelessly lost without me. You desperately need my grace, my love, my light for your healing, wholeness, and hope. And without me, your life is meaningless and will end in hopelessness. That's the God we're talking about. And the truth is that every single one of us, Christian or not, have a problem with this God. We have, just as humans, we have a cosmic authority problem. At the core of the human heart, there is this, an impulse that says, no one tells me what to do. If you're married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? I can know, like, the thing to do, but if my wife tells me to do that thing, all of a sudden, it's like for no reason at all, I'm like, I'm going to do it different now. You know, like... <laughs> Why? Because I have a cosmic authority problem. I don't like to be told what to do. It's funny. Actually, I was thinking about this last night. We're cleaning our house. Some friends are going to stay there while we're gone. And this is always the way. Don't tell Grace I said this. This is always the way it happens, though. If I want to do something, I've got to give every reason why we're going to do this thing. You know, she's able to ask all the questions. But if I'm like, why are we throwing a baby shower at our house? Why, why do I have to wash the couch that I washed last week? That brings a lot of conflict. So, anyway, I've realized I don't think I'm allowed to ask as many questions. <laughs> Side note. But we have a cosmic authority problem, nonetheless, right? And at the core of the human heart, there is that impulse. No one tells me what to do. And, and this is the root to all of our problems in life. We actually create gods of our own liking to mask our own hostility to the real God. It's like, oh, I don't have a problem with God. It's because you're not really probably thinking about the true, the living God, the God of the Bible. The one who reveals himself as our absolute king. Augustine, church father, he said, if we loved God perfectly, we could do whatever we want. But the truth is that none of us do, and this leads to all sorts of self-centeredness, conflict, chaos, and evil. And we express this hostility, strangely enough, in in two totally different ways. We can do it through outright disobedience and irreligion. I want to live my life my own way. No one tells me how to do it. But we can also do it through religion and moral um, upkeeping, right? And this is a way that we, we use morality or religion to put God in our debt. I'm a good person, so God owes me blessing, health, happiness, and eternal life. It's a way to control God, not a way to trust him, not a way to obey him. Now, here in our passage, we have God's message to the world. It's peace. And here's the interesting thing. It's not a negotiation. God isn't like, you know, hey, like, Here's, here's the white flag, like, let's talk. God is like, peace on earth. 
I'm doing this. It's interesting to me. He's not asking us to come halfway. It's a declaration of something that is happening. Something that is coming to pass and an invitation to receive it with gratefulness. You know, when you think about the gospel, it's not good advice, it's good news. It's not telling you what to do, it's telling you something has happened, something has taken place. And that's what we see here. God isn't saying like, hey, I want to talk, or, you know, hey, let's kind of meet in the middle, or we could work something out. No, good news is happening. Peace on earth is coming. Now, God says peace on earth. And if you don't know the God of the Bible, or you have just a version of the God of the Bible, a caricature of the God of the Bible, you probably have great fears about giving up receiving that peace from God. How can we trust God? All right. How can we trust him to be good and safe? That was so weird. Um, (laughs) Of all the things... All right, cool. All right, how can we trust this declaration of peace? So here's a few things in the text. First of all, we have here in this passage an incredible scene. We have the host of heaven announcing this peace from God. Now, if you know Old Testament, these hosts of heaven, as they're called, are angelic beings. Divine beings, also um, among other religions, they're just called gods. They're not the most high god, but they're gods. They're powerful beings. And in the Old Testament, they destroyed massive human armies. They were fierce. Anytime someone's in the presence of an angelic being in the, in the scripture, they fall down and they think they're going to die. They think they're going to be destroyed. It's that uh, intimidating. And it, of course, I mean, what are the first words out of the angel's mouth? Don't be afraid. It's like, come on, humans. Like, we've done this so many times. Come on. Right? They're fearful looking. But here, they're extending the olive branch. It's strange, right? Supposed to get us to be like, huh, if you know your Bible. Second, their message. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Messiah the Lord. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now this child is called a savior. This would hearken the people of Israel back to when they were slaves in Egypt. When God saw their affliction and raised up a savior, a deliverer, Moses, to lead them out of slavery and into a new land. So this child likewise is a rescuer, a redeemer, a savior. He's not here for judgment. He's here on a rescue mission. A favorite uh, Christmas hymn of mine is uh, written by a guy named Klaus Hart. It's old. But one of the stanzas in it, he says this, Come and stand amazed, you people, to see how God is reconciled. See his plans of love accomplished. See his gift, this newborn child. See the mighty, weak, and tender. See the word who now is mute. See the sovereign without his splendor. See how the fullness is destitute. Just picture the scene. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Oh, there's a Savior, there's a rescuer, there's a redeemer. And what does he look like? He's a baby in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. He is totally helpless. And I think this, this causes us just to think about Jesus now. Look at Jesus. So you, you're maybe fearful about this offer of God's peace. What does this look like? What is God asking of me? How can I trust him? All this. Look at Jesus. Jesus lived a life of radical allegiance and loyalty, trust and obedience to God. The scripture tells us it's a life we owe to God. He was fully surrendered to God. He had total peace with God, but he gave that peace up, scripture says, at the cross so that we might have peace with God. Paul says it like this. uh, He made him who never knew sin, who never knew human brokenness or human evil, to become sin, chaos, to take on human evil, that we might become right with God, that we might have a right relationship with God. Or in another passage, Paul talks about how Jesus was rich, But because of our poverty, he made himself poor so that we could have his riches. That's what happened. Jesus emptied himself. He gave his life to set us free from sin and the power of sin over our lives so we can be part of God's kingdom. Now think about this. If the omnipotent son of God would radically lose control all for you, do you think you can trust him? If God, the sovereign Lord, the one who has worship and glory and honor being sung to his name by all creation and all the angelic hosts all the time, would set that aside for our sakes, for our peace, you think you can trust somebody like that? This scene that we're looking at here, this Christmas scene, should dispel our fears and draw us closer to seek to understand and know this God, to, to know why the God of the universe would act this way. He has laid down his weapons of warfare. I mean, you can see so many times in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, God is angry about sin. God is angry about the brokenness of the world. And God promises that he is going to bring restitution, judgment, that he's going to deal with evil. He's going to deal with sin and the chaos in the world. But here in the scene, God has laid down his weapons of warfare, the the God of the mighty host of heaven. See, this should just like shock us. He's laid down his weapons of warfare. God could have come with the sword of his wrath and demanded allegiance and dealt out justice, right? He's sovereign as we often say, right? But instead, God comes to bear judgment and to bear sin at the cross. You look at the end of Jesus' life, if he's helpless there in the manger, think about there on the cross, he's laid out in helplessness. Arms and feet are pinned to the cross. All for you and all for me. All for his great love for the world to redeem it, to rescue it. How can we not be disarmed by this love? 
how can we doubt his good intentions for us? And yet we do. But this is why we often say here at Refuge, why we need to be gospel-centered people. We have to go back to the gospel again and again and again. See how he loved us. See what he sacrificed and gave up for us. See his great mercy and kindness. That God would bring peace to the world at his own expense. And so the offer, really, of Christmas is to surrender, to give up your warfare against God, to lay down your arms and surrender to him. Stop fighting him. He doesn't want to fight you. He wants to bless you. He wants to transform you. And know this, to surrender to God, as we were saying a moment ago, to the creator, to Jesus the Messiah, is to truly become human. Human wholeness and the glory of God are not mutually exclusive, but an indissoluble whole. I was thinking about this in my Advent musings, as I call them. I only had one this year, (laughs) so they weren't that great. Um, But in Christianity, I don't discover my true self. And oftentimes we talk about Christianity in that way. Hey, you know, you, you find out who you really are. And I get where people are coming from. And I think I've said stuff like this myself. But instead, in Christianity, God comes to rescue me from myself and from what sin has worked in my life. He has come to deliver me from the powers of evil that I have colluded with. And I am enchained under the power of selfishness and self-centeredness, the power of pride, the power of perversity, the power of idolatry and covetousness that is... Just the human race is littered with it. Every one of us are sick with the disease of sin. God comes to rescue me in order that I can be who he created me to be. And this is what we're made for. We're made for God. We're made for his love. We're made for his friendship. We're made for his fatherly care to know him, to serve him. And when you surrender to him, all these things come together to give you a whole new way to experience life. Life in all of its fullness, as scripture often describes it. Life at peace with our creator. And this is the peace being offered to us here in the Christmas story. I often think about it this way. God is working peace on earth backwards. You think about the creation narrative or story, right? How does it begin? Anybody know? Well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Cool. We do know. And then it goes on. You know, you've got the land and the sky and the celestial beings. You've got the animals, the fruit, trees, and all this. And then the last day, you've got humans, right? When you think about new creation, how God is doing it, it's the exact opposite. God is starting over, but he's going backwards this time for some reason. And he starts with human beings, and he's making us new, and he's bringing his peace into our hearts. And he's inviting us, as he did the first human beings, to cultivate, to subdue the earth with this righteousness, justice, and shalom to sow that into the earth so that eventually one day God will create a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's all going backwards. The creation itself will be redeemed and experience this peace with God. And so you see, as I said in the beginning, you've got these two translations 
sounds like peace is for an exclusive few, maybe peace is for everybody. It's both. Because for those who have surrendered and made peace with God, God works this peace, this righteousness, this justice through them. And maybe you can take this with you as you go to see your family, who sometimes this is chaotic time for people. It's like the most wonderful time of the year. I don't think so, right? I'm like, no. Think about the Sermon on the Mount for a moment. Jesus calls all of his followers to be peacemakers. Now, to be a peacemaker, that, that, that takes a lot of humility. That takes a lot of admitting faults and weakness, surrendering our pride. It takes um, the strong effort to love, which is an action, without needing to control, not doing it to manipulate or to get some skin in the game. And these skills or characteristics have amazing power to diffuse conflicts to facilitate forgiveness and reconciliation between people. And these are the skills that God equips his people with. He sows his peace in us through the power and regeneration and the working of the Holy Spirit. And then he sends us out to go and make his peace known through our relationships that we have. And so those who have peace with God and have been filled up with his love, his approval his acceptance. You know, if the God of the universe loves you and accepts you and approves of you, who cares what anyone else thinks of you? You don't have to live up to the requirements or achievements that others set for you. You can live according to the boundaries of your creator instead. And you can be free. You're free to love people for who they are and accept them as they are. And this is Power, power from God to go out into the world and diffuse that peace everywhere you go. God's people are agents of peace and reconciliation among races, classes, families, neighbors, and even families. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, Christmas means that through the grace of God and the incarnation, peace with God is available. And if you can make peace with God, or if God has made peace with you, then you can go out and make peace with everyone else. So, Close us up. Are you experiencing peace with God? Peace in your soul. Peace with others. Now, remember, God's great glory is to bring peace on earth by bringing peace to individual lives. You might think that your peace and joy are in conflict with God's glory, and they might be your version of joy and peace, your thoughts and dreams of what will truly satisfy you and give you the security that you long for. But let me ask you this, of all the things that you have sought for in the past and the things that you've received, have any of them brought the peace or satisfaction that you thought they would? The wells of water that you keep pulling from to satisfy your inner thirst, are they doing it for you? I don't imagine that they are because they don't do it for me either. We're all on a spiritual quest. We're all searching. We're all hungering. This is incredible because Jesus Christ sits on the scene and says to anyone who thirsts, let him come to me. And as the scripture says, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He will have his or her soul thirst quenched and they will be refreshment to others in the world around them. Only God, your creator, knows what will truly satisfy you and what will bring peace to your life. And the good news is that God has done it, right? 
He's made a way that you can know him and receive that peace in that life. And it's through his son, Jesus, we talked about, who came and established the kingdom of God, who was crowned with a crown of thorns, who was clothed in purple, and who was nailed to the tree as though it was a throne of glory. Jesus Christ became king and established the kingdom of God. He died for your sins that kept you from God and from his kingdom, from the joy and peace that he has for you. So now you can be part of the kingdom of God. Now you can draw near to God. You can have peace and true fulfillment. As the scripture says, in God's presence, there is fullness of joy at his right hand or pleasures evermore. This is just telling us that this is just the beginning. There is the best is yet to come. There's joy, peace, and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. The scripture says he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul. He fills with good things. He's the fountain of living waters, and he offers all of this to you. So if you want that peace with God, if you're not experiencing that peace with God, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Maybe there's sin in your life. There's just things you're just living out of step with God. You're doing things you know are wrong, or they're just little things that are just causing you to be out of step. Selfishness, pride. Well, the the Bible says, get rid of those things and turn to God. You can do that in a moment of saying, I don't want this anymore. God, I want you. Maybe it's just simply you're counterfeiting. You're going to wells that cannot satisfy. And God says, turn to me. I'm the fountain of living waters. If you drink of me, you will never thirst again. Or maybe it's simply that rhythm of your life. is just out of sync. You're just not seeking God. You're not thinking about him. You've made some caricature of God and it keeps you from going to him some God who is angry at you who as soon as you come to him is going to be like glad you're here here's the list let me know when you're done check back in we'll see if we can maybe get a blessing for you or something like that (laughs) you know I mean we do this it's ridiculous that's not the God of the Bible The God of the Bible is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's the God of forgiveness and grace and mercy. So turn to him this morning. Peace is waiting for any and all who call upon the Lord in humility. And so the last thing I would say is this. God gave this incredible message to these angels. Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. The God of the universe, the God who is the righteous God, who will make all things new, who will judge the world in righteousness, has come, not with a sword in his hand, but he's come in peace. Come, not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment, so that you can have peace. So the question is, like the angels, or like the shepherds, who are you going to tell? Who are you going to tell? Who are you going to manifest that peace to? We have a sin-sick World, Like that song. Bono knows it. Do you know it? Life on earth sucks. It's hard. It's painful. Our loved ones die. We, Christmas is a joyful time, but it's also time broken as people have cancer. People are suffering. Marriages are falling apart. Children are rebelling. There's all sorts of chaos, and what we desperately need is we need the peace of God to rule in our hearts. We need to know that the supreme God loves us, determines our good, and our final destiny in a new heaven and a new earth. We need that hope at Christmas time. We need that peace of God. So, church, who are you going to tell?
who are you going to incarnate the gospel and the peace of God to? I'll leave you with that. Lord, we thank you so much. Lord, Christmas is an incredible, mind-blowing event to think about how you humbled yourself to become a baby, to experience birth and all that you went through, Lord. But when we go further to the life that you lived of servitude, of humility, of kindness, of mercy, of righteousness, of justice, Lord, when we think about how you bore the cross, Lord, not because you were evil, but because you were rescuing us from evil, from the sin that pollutes our hearts and minds. Lord, we want to honor you. We want to glorify you. And we want others to know, to be able to stand up and cheer and applaud for who you really are and for what you've done. And so, Lord, as we go from here, would we incarnate the peace and the hope and the steadfast love displayed in the incarnation? Lord, would you fill us with peace in our hearts? So, Lord, we can be who you've created us to be. We can be a blessing to those around us. Amen.